Coming up on Blue Hen Sports Cage, we discuss the latest on Anthony Davis, the New Orleans Pelicans 25-year-old star forward, break down Delaware men's and women's basketball's weekend of action, and make a few early Super Bowl 53 predictions. He looks really good. It finally hit me that Delaware's not just playing to keep it close. Delaware's here to win. But if they're going to really lock down in a game, this would be the one to do it. Overall, I think this is their identity now. There weren't enough things that you and I could say on the broadcast to praise Eric Carter. I do have to put out a formal apology to Darian Bryant. It's over for the Eagles. When you're only better than the Cleveland Browns, you're not very good. This is going to be the Delaware defense like, through and through. If you lose, you're leaving yourself on the bubble with all of these other teams that I would say are just as good as you are. Losing Nicole, that's a big part of what we did a year ago. It's a process, and we need to really lay a strong foundation of who we are as a basketball program. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast. I think Anthony Davis is the type of player that, similar to like LeBron type status, that if you acquire him, you're instantly in the mix. Um, I what just think, team wants to dump their entire roster for maybe two years of Anthony Davis? I mean, I think that you don't dump your entire roster to trade for Anthony Davis unless you are fairly certain that you could get a long-term extension done either this offseason or the offseason after when he becomes a free agent. And so, like you said, the teams like the Celtics and the Lakers, who have the assets to acquire him, also are like attractive cities to be in and have the means to sign him to a huge max contract. However, I just think if I'm any GM, I'm knocking at the door, I'm... seeing if the pool of players and picks that I could offer can get me Anthony Davis, as long as I think there's a decent chance that I can convince him to sign on for four or five years. Well, there's only one team that has that chance, and that's the Lakers. No other team's going to get Anthony Davis for more years because they don't have LeBron. It's going to be Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is not going to sign a five-year contract to play on Boston. Anthony Davis will sign a one-year deal to play on Boston and go somewhere else. Kyrie Irving, Gordon Hayward— because that's all they're going to have left. They might not even have Kyrie. You might have to trade Kyrie to get AD. Well, here's here's part more of the situation. So one of the components of this is that today Anthony Davis did not release a list of teams that he would like to play for, which is common practice when a player of his magnitude is requesting a trade. Jimmy Butler did it. Kyrie Irving did it. Kawhi Leonard. There was some discussion about places that he would like to land and a lot of people thinking L.A., but he ends up going to Toronto. Jimmy Butler, Philadelphia was not on his list. Kyrie Irving ends up in a good situation in Boston. The Celtics weren't on his list. The Celtics of all of these teams that we're talking about, when we say destinations, okay, we're talking Lakers, we're talking Celtics, we're talking Knicks. The Celtics, in most people's eyes, have the best collection of assets to acquire Anthony Davis. But the situation therein is that Kyrie Irving and Anthony Davis are both signed to designated rookie extensions. And a little part of the CBA does not allow a team to have two players on those contracts. So they would either have to include Kyrie Irving in a trade for Anthony Davis this season, or they could wait till this offseason when Kyrie Irving becomes a free agent, re-sign Kyrie Irving, or he goes and signs somewhere else, and then they could acquire Anthony Davis via trade in the offseason. But in my opinion, looking at those three teams in particular, Boston would have the most trade capital to get Anthony Davis in a deal, 
how much they're willing to give of that comes to what Jake's talking about in can they get Anthony Davis to make a commitment long term? Do you take the risk for a year and say, let's go just win a championship and see if our culture proves that he wants to to stay here? Kind of the gamble that the Raptors took with Kawhi Leonard this year, that Oklahoma City took with Paul George a couple of years ago. Or do you make a Jason Tatum or a Jalen Brown type trade contingent on having that extension in place with Davis? And then also the other component of can you wait till the offseason or are the Pelicans going to start dealing right now? Well, the Celtics are the only team that can wait because, I mean, you go five, six deep on their roster, they still have assets like you mentioned. So the Celtics are the one team that is going to wait until February 8th. They're going to wait until the offseason. And if Anthony Davis is still there, then they have the rights to get him. If Anthony Davis is not there, then some team gave Anthony Davis more than the Celtics would have gave wanted to Gave the Pelicans. Give, uh, gave the Pelicans yeah. more than the Celtics were going to give anyway. So there's no net loss here for the Celtics. The Celtics are in the best possible position, and I personally think the Lakers are in the worst possible position because they have to get Anthony Davis. They can't not get him. Brandon Ingram, Kyle Kuzma, Josh Hart, Alonzo uh, Ball, they've all shown promise but have not really grown since last season. So there's no reason for the Lakers not to dump house. The Pelicans want young players. I mean, Drew Holiday is still carrying their team, and he is one sneeze away from being out for the season. They need to bring in young guys. Put them in. See how they do. It stinks that the Lakers have to do this because they just got LeBron, and LeBron was like, yeah, full promise. Let's get these young guys. It's Anthony Davis and LeBron in L.A. Well, and Anthony Davis is 25 years old. LeBron James now is 34. So even though, yes, it would be a move theoretically for the present at some point, Anthony Davis becomes your cornerstone now. And that's still a guy that, if he commits to playing in L.A., which is a place a lot of people think he wants to play, he could be there for 10 years. He could sign this contract and another one and be a cornerstone of that franchise as LeBron James goes into the end of his career, how long he wants to play, that's yet to be seen. But he could be the complementary piece eventually to Anthony Davis. A question for the Pelicans to answer is whether any of these assets are good enough to warn an Anthony Davis trade compared to what Boston has to offer or even what the Knicks have to offer in the potential top three pick and Kristaps Porzingis, none of the Lakers' assets seem to provide that same star potential. Maybe they'd be good players, but none of them look on the surface to have KP's ceiling or Jason Tatum's ceiling or Jalen Brown's ceiling. Exactly. I think um, that if you're the Pelicans, you need to be Patient, really, really patient. Um, in this ten-day window before the trade deadline, I doubt that you're going to get an offer that is so mind-blowing that they should do the deal now. Uh, I think it'd be a lot smarter to wait till the off-season when the Celtics are an actual player in this sweepstakes, and when there's more players in the sweet sweet stakes. Hopefully. Uh, they'll like bid each other up, and that is when the Pelicans can get the maximum return on Anthony Davis. And um, as we've mentioned, as you did at the top, Brandon, uh, they have Anthony Davis for another year and a half. So it's not like they're pressed up against it to get rid of him right now. They can wait till this right. off season, and they still have leverage. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Let's start with the women's team that. I would say a little surprising, maybe not that they won both games this past weekend, but that they won them both very convincingly. A 65-53 to win over UNCW, who came into the weekend as the third-best team in the CAA, 
record-wise. And then not as great a team. Charleston came into the game with just one CAA win, but Delaware has their largest margin in quite some time, a 74-50 to victory to get that one done. Parker, you were at both games, the Friday game with me, the Sunday game with Jake. I'll start with you. What do you make of the performance this weekend from the Delaware women's basketball team? I was very impressed with their performance, and the biggest takeaway I had that it's not just uh, one or two star performers on the women's team. We saw Simone DeFries go off and have a career game on Friday. She had a career high in points and in 26 and completed the double-double with 11 rebounds there. Um, and then on Sunday, it was more Jasmine Dickey, who was the leading scorer, and um, coming off the bench, Paris McBride. Paris McBride. Huge game, huge game. That was one of the most entertaining women's basketball games I think I've ever seen, and I have watched games where Nicole Anabosi takes on triple coverage and still scores. And watching Paris McBride play, Paris McBride is 5'4". I mean, we'll just, yeah. we'll just get yeah. that out there. She's not She's a your stereotypical basketball player. Five, four. She's listed 5'4". I mean, yeah. And I mean, it could at, be at, Ryan Daly. Maximum height, yeah. yeah, Ryan Daly was li- listed like six five last year, and there was no shot in that. But she was playing with so much energy that it was almost you hoped that Charleston would get into it with Paris McBride, and you hoped that they would try to block her more to fire her up. And there was one play where she drove in, and they called it a charge. But and first of all, Paris McBride screamed at the face of the ref, and the ref kind of just like relaxed, calmed down. And they changed it to a block. And I've never seen somebody get more excited off, off, uh, after a changed call. She was great. They interviewed her and Coach Adair, I heard from the other call, said there was nobody else that we'd expect the energy to come from than Paris McBride. So it was nice that she had a good 12-point off-the-bench performance. Yeah, she's 12 points, 5 of 8 shooting in 24 minutes of play. It hasn't been that way, though, for Paris McBride, who has been getting regular minutes as a freshman, mostly off the bench this season. But to be honest, hadn't done a whole lot with them until Sunday's game against Charleston. On the season, she's averaging 4.4 points per game off 27.2% shooting from the field, and she's just 4 of 28 from three-point range this season. Is that Charleston game, though, something that you guys could see? You know, I don't want to say that's going to be her performance day in, day out, but something that could catapult a player like Paris McBride into a little bit bigger role for this Blue Hens team. Absolutely. I mean, she had a coming out party and that should give her so much confidence uh, going forward. Her performance itself, but also the confidence that Coach Adair has in her. I mean, she, her and Makeda Nicholas got put into the game a minute into the third quarter after Charleston started off, I think it was on an 8-0 run to start the quarter. Uh, and eventually, Charleston took a one-point lead. That was their only lead in the game. 39-38. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then Delaware and, happened. Yeah, and then Paris McBride got put in, and she was just the spark that initiated Jake. I think it was a 24-1. to 24-1 run. Run, yeah. And then <laughs> so, after that's that, huge. After that 24-1 yeah. run finished, there was no uh, sway in scoring for the rest of the game. Two and two, three and three in the state. That's a 24-point victory. I do want to go back to something Parker mentioned right off the top in Simone DeFries' play these last couple of games. Career-high 26 points against UNCW. Comes back with a solid performance against Charleston, 14 points in 27 minutes. She's now also started in the last three games. 
10 points per game on the season. I think this is more of what we expected from Simone DeFries coming into this season. She was the second leading scorer on last year's team behind Nicole Anabosi. Had some similar games where she had success driving to the basket, cutting to the basket, and getting those looks inside. I thought coming into this year, maybe if she improved shooting from the perimeter, that would help expand her game. I don't know if that's really come into play, but she's at least regained some of that form from a season ago where she was a breakout and a little bit more of a surprising contributor to this team. It's almost as if they're using her differently. And when Coach Adair ran the few sets in the beginning with Simone DeFries, last year she played that middle three role because more times than not it was Nicole Nabosi and probably Rebecca Lawrence on the court. But now she's playing that low four, and I don't think that's just because of pure need because Nicole Nabosi's out, but I think they like her better down low, and there were a few drives that uh, would get swung around the perimeter down to Simone DeFries down low, and she just drove baseline. And for a player that can naturally drive baseline, because that's one of the hardest things to do in basketball, but it's one of the best things to do in basketball, right. that once you get that baseline drive down, there's no reason for you to move. I mean, in the men's basketball side, Darian Bryan can do it. They don't do it as often, but Darian Bryan's known to be able to drive baseline well. So if they put Simone DeFries down there, swing the ball around with McBride, Cargo, Abby Gonzalez, and let her drive baseline, that's the perfect place to put her. And I think that's how she got her career high on U- in UNCW and her good uh, game here against Charleston. Yeah, and what stood out to me was her ability to finish on both sides of the rim with her left and right hand and really made some like high-off-the-glass contested shots and some floaters, and she just really had it going on Friday. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. I'm Brandon Halvek with Parker Kerrigan and Jake Lampert. Let's switch over to the men's side. They get a victory this weekend, but again, not without a little bit of a scare at the end of this game. A 76-75 to victory over Drexel, but Delaware had a very large lead, especially uh, midway through that second half, but into the first half, 44-33 to in the first 20 minutes. They extended it beyond there, and then Drexel comes roaring back to make this one come down to the wire. It's been a consistent theme. We spoke about it both Monday and Thursday of last week, and it continues on here in this Delaware Drexel game. The Blue Hens out to a fast start, and then the second half they let their opponent come all the way back into the game. Yeah, they played a very good 38 minutes of basketball. They shot really well from the field with 56%, and even from behind the line they had a really good 52%. But in that last two minutes, they just couldn't take care of the ball and couldn't hit their free throws. That's all on Inglesby. I mean, I'm normally not one to point the blame at a coach because he's not the one shooting and he's not the one playing defense. But if your team has had three straight pretty much monumental collapses, you were up 14, you were up 18. I don't know how much they were up against Drexel, but... You can't blow three double-digit leads in the first, and even not that you can't blow three double-digit leads in the first, you can't blow three double-digit leads in the first in the last few minutes of play. Now, if Drexel comes out in the second half kind of like Towson did and just shot the lights out, played great defense, and just overtook you in the second, so be it. They they had a better second half. But if you're losing in the last two minutes, that's all on that clipboard. you got to fix that because these teams, Hofstra and UNCW and Charleston— They're not going to let you get away with that. And it wasn't that scenario you laid out 
they didn't come out shooting the ball right. especially well in the second half. As a team, Drexel in the second half was 45% from the field and 3 of 12 from 3. Delaware in this game turned the ball over 21 times. And seven, that's seven be... times in the last eight possessions, I think, is what Kevin wrote in the media report. Yeah, and they, at one point in this game, led by 15 to be exact. They come out with 21 turnovers a season high. Yeah, they were up 13 with just over two minutes to go. Like, that should be it. That should be game over. Like, you're getting ready to celebrate the win, um, but... You just can't take your gas off the your foot off the gas. Can't, take, I say. Tank, can't take your gas off the foot. <laughs> exactly. Yep. One one bright spot I will point out from this game: Ryan Allen, third game in the last four with more than twenty points, four of six from three, ten of sixteen from the field, and it does seem like Ethel Horton kind of got back on track offensively. Five turnovers, which you know that's inexcusable, but eight of twelve from the floor, three of six from three. He had been a little bit cold shooting. You know ball. who got back? Kevin Anderson, yeah. he scored 16 points. I mean, the two, the last two men's basketball games that I scored, Kevin Anderson had, had zero points in over 65 minutes of play. That's more than two and a, well, three and a half halves of basketball. Like Kevin Anderson, 20, 40, 60, and yeah. after five. Uh, Kevin Anderson could <laughs> not score, one. and seeing him with 16 points was just. Yeah, last, I'm just happy for him to be back. Last weekend as a whole against JMU and Towson, 3 of 14 combined shooting, 10 points overall at 16 against Drexel. Yeah, that's was a bad bad stretch to be Kevin Anderson, but not that we need him to be a scorer. I mean, we have Horton, we have Carter, we have Darian Bryant, we have Ryan that's what Allen. we talked about a little bit a couple Thursdays ago. But it's nice. It's nice if he can score. He's a, he's smart with the basketball. He's gotten a lot smarter than it was last year at this position in the season. Well, he until he got hurt. Yeah, um, he wasn't around. But he's smarter, but we could still use scoring. Scoring's never going to hurt anyone, especially when Justin Wright Foreman's scoring 91 <laughs> points a game from the parking lot. <laughs> yeah, and the Delaware now, they've gone through all of the CIA once, so they'll start to see some of these teams a second time and get an even better gauge of how they can adjust to what their opponent has seen and when their opponent adjusts to them. How do they counter back. Uh, Delaware back in action Thursday at Elon Which Saturday. is nice that it's Elon. They get back into the second <laughs> swing of CIA play against Elon. I mean, I Very can't guarantee anything, but it's a winnable game. Yeah, winnable game Thursday against Elon Saturday at William & Mary. Good opponent, but Delaware beat them by two when they were in the Bob Carpenter Center. Uh, and the women's basketball team also will be back in action this weekend as they are now 8-11, and 3-4 in conference play. Doesn't sound so bad after the 2-0 and weekend. They're at William & Mary on Friday and Sunday at Elon. So we get a break this weekend, but some, still some Delaware basketball action to keep an eye on. Should the women's basketball team win, Coach Adair will notch her 100th career win. Last weekend was 98-99, and 99, so we hope Coach Adair can get to 100 and she won't have to wait um, long at all for her to get into that 100-win 100 100 column. Yep, and we'll have a little bit more on both teams Thursday, but keep an eye out for those games on the road. And then we'll have our uh, full schedule up on WVD.org for our next broadcast, not this weekend, but the following. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Have a set of rapid-fire Super Bowl week questions for us to answer, and they're a little off the beaten path, not quite the prop bets you'll hear about uh, out in Vegas this week, but we'll revisit these after the game next week on Monday and see how we fare. The questions are a little bit all over the place um, but you'll get a feel for him as we go along. The first is who will have more rushing yards, Todd Gurley or Sony Michelle? 
I'd say Sony Michelle. Todd Gurley, because Todd Gurley has to share the ball with one person. Sony Michelle has to share it with five. Four, I should say. Four. So just more one ball, more mouths to feed. I'll take Todd Gurley. I'll go with Sony Michelle as well. Who will have more passing yards, Tom Brady or Jared Goff? Brady. The Rams can run the ball more. It kind of goes hand in hand with the other question. Brady. I'll take Brady as well. Which will be greater? Rams sacks, so that's Rams defense sacking New England's quarterback, or Rams fourth down attempts, attempts at converting fourth downs? Mm, I'll go sacks. Aaron Donald will get to him. Not not often, but Aaron, Aaron Donald will get to him. I'm going to go fourth down attempts because I think the Rams are going to ha- are going to be playing from behind when it comes down to it in the fourth and also you might get one or two middle of the game fourth down attempts because I think Sean McVay knows he's going to have to be aggressive in order to win this game. I agree with that sentiment that they need to be aggressive to win the game, but it's not been the way that Sean McVay has coached throughout this season. They have been one of the lesser aggressive of the playoff teams in terms of going for it on fourth downs. I think if they do get into a few situations that force their hand at the end of the game, if they're trailing, that will make this a little bit closer. So I am going to go fourth down attempts because Tom Brady gets the ball out quick. This is the number one offensive line in terms of pass protection metrics all season long. And Aaron Donald in a lot of these last couple of games has been diminished in in what he's offered himself. Now, can other guys take advantage of one-on-ones? That's really the question for the Rams defensive line. But I'll go closely Rams fourth down attempts because I think they'll be trailing like you, Parker. Which will be greater, C.J. Anderson rushing attempts or Greg Zauerlein's longest field goal make minus 25 yards? So if Zauerlein makes a 50-yard field goal, that values 25 versus C.J. Anderson's rushing attempts. Although I think that the Rams will feed Anderson steadily, maybe get almost even carries with Gurley. Uh, I think being in the Dome in Atlanta, I'm pretty sure Atlanta has a Dome. Yeah, yeah, yeah they'll close okay. it off. Yeah. Uh, I think Greg the Leg, with his power, uh, makes a 50-plus yarder, um, and I don't see Anderson getting more than 20 carries. Yeah, I'll take Greg the Leg, too. I'm going to take Legatron as well. Which will be greater, Julian Edelman receptions or combined receptions between Josh Reynolds and Tyler Higby, the Rams' third wide receiver and their starting tight end? Edelman's receptions, or I'll take Edelman's receptions. I think he'll get a lot, uh, especially because they're going to double cover Gronk probably on every play. I'll take the Reynolds and Higby combination. I think uh, Jared Goff will try to spread the ball around. I think this one's going to be close because I think Reynolds and Higby are in that three or four catch territory, and Julian Edelman's in that seven, eight, maybe nine catch territory. So I think this one is close. I'll go with Edelman just because I think there's potential for somebody like Josh Reynolds just to not really get targeted a whole lot if there, if Cooks and Woods and Higby and Gurley get going versus I know the Patriots are going to have to integrate Julian Edelman into this game to be successful. Which will be greater, Aaron Donald tackles? He has just four in the last two games. Or Stefan Jostowski's extra point makes? Ooh, uh, this one I think will be very close. Um, I'm going to go with 
Aaron Donald tackles, uh, just how dominant he is in stopping the run. Um, yeah, I don't even if New England double teams, triple teams him, I think he'll still get his. So, Aaron Donald. I'll go Aaron Donald too. Yeah, I think Aaron Donald's like I said, he'll get to the quarterback. I also don't think the Patriots are going to kick many extra points. I think they're going to go for two more times than not because they know that the Rams are known to go for two. So rather than going for one and letting the Rams take the lead on you, prevent it as a whole, go for two, make it the norm. I'll take, I think I'll take the extra points. I think that, I think this is going to be a high scoring game. So maybe four or five extra points. Maybe Donald doesn't get there. I'm not sure. Two to go. Which will be greater? James White's receptions minus five. So again, if he's got 10 catches, the value's five. Or a Keeb Talib pass breakup. So we could see Talib traveling the field to multiple spots, depending on matchup if the Rams want him on Edelman or if they want to use him in matchups against Gronkowski. So it's White receptions minus five or a Keeb Talib pass breakups. I'll go White receptions minus five. Because I don't think Brady's even going to throw to a keep to leap side. Uh, he knows what he can do when they played him against Denver. He knows what he can do when he was wearing a Patriots jersey. Uh, I think they'll avoid him at all costs. I'm going to go a keep to leap pass breakups pretty much because I think that the Rams are going to game plan to stop James White. I'm going to take White. I think this is close, but if White gets in the neighborhood of seven or eight catches, I don't know how many breakups will be awarded to keep to leave, let alone how many times he'll be targeted. The last one is the over-under for this game, which is currently set at 56.5. Hammer the over. 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 I'm going to take over as well. 